0: Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Grab your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 25. We're going to be talking about truth and hope on trial today. And uh, I think that you've noticed that truth is on trial in our country, and if we sacrifice true truth, and I'll talk about what that means in a moment, we will inevitably sacrifice true hope. We have a message of hope to declare to the world, but we can't be timid about the central message of the faith. And what's happening is there's three minutes left in the game. We're down by two touchdowns Is one of my a Bud said out in, out in the foyer this morning, and we're in prevent defense. That's not what we should be doing right now. And so what we need to do is get on the offensive, and we're going to watch the Apostle Paul do exactly that. Now, I want to hit one thing before we start, and let's pray, and then we'll hit it. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this group of people that's come on this Sunday morning, and we want to hear from you, Lord. We want to get out of the way And let Jesus be seen. Let your Holy Spirit fall upon this place, your people. May we sense your presence, Lord. May this place be an extension of the Holy of Holies. May you speak to your church, because this and other churches like it are your church. You are the chief shepherd. And we believe that you are in the midst of the church and with your people. And so I pray that we would see you afresh today and have a renewed fervor and passion for your kingdom. Lead us by this, uh, through this Bible study by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to Acts 9 for a second. I want to just show you the power behind Paul, Acts 9. We'll come back to Acts 25 in a moment. This is Acts 9.15, but the Lord said to him, go, and the Lord is speaking to Ananias to go and speak to Saul, who becomes Paul, Acts 9.15, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. If you go over to Acts 18 for a second, Acts 18. This is verse 9. The apostle Paul knew that another trial in his life was coming. And the Lord, Acts 18:9, said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Some of you need to underline that verse for yourself today. Don't be afraid any longer, Acts 18, verse 9. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. That's what you need to know when it comes to speaking the truth. God is with you. And God will give you the power and he will give you the message to preach. And he's already given it and it's imbued with his power already. It's the gospel. So here we have the Apostle Paul. Go now to Acts 24, the very end of the chapter. Two weeks ago when we were uh, studying the book of Acts, we took a break on Father's Day. We saw Paul before Felix and Drusilla. Felix's name means happy. And Drusilla was his illegal bride, immoral bride. And Mr. Happy was the governor. And the Apostle Paul was going to speak to the governor and to the ravishing beauty at his arm. If you were going to speak to the governor and you knew that he had your future in his hands, what would you say? What would be your three-point sermon? Would you try to ingratiate yourself? Here's some lessons on how you speak to the world. This isn't the only model, but this is certainly one model. And this was in the tabloids on all the entertainment programs when you flipped them on and you watched the talk of the town was Felix and Drusilla and their relationship and how he was... uh, Felix, Mr. Happy, stole her away from... Her husband. And now they've been pictured on the beach and they look a little fat. I don't know what they've been eating lately, but the, it's in the tabloids everywhere. There's an immoral lifestyle going on and everybody's talking about it, but nobody will judge it. Nobody will say anything about it. And the Apostle Paul stands before the governor and this ravishing beauty, Drusilla. And in Acts 24:25, he discusses with them righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. As Alistair Begg would put it, what a jolly good three-point sermon. Wow. Is that what you would preach? Is that how you would confront the world? Is that how you would speak to the governor, knowing that he was in this immoral relationship, a three-point sermon on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? There's a Dr. Rawlings, he was a skeptic of Christianity and even the afterlife, a cardiologist, And he had an experience with a man that the man flatlined as he was working on him and the man began to scream, I'm in hell. I'm in hell. Help me, doctor. And the doctor replied, I'm not a minister. I'm a doctor, (laughs) right? And the man had terror in his eyes and the man ended up coming back and Dr. Rawlings began his research on what's called NDEs, near-death experiences. Now, we don't hang our theology on these But I want you to hear this quote from Dr. Rawlings. After studying the subject and writing on it, he summed up his findings saying, quote, Most people are deathly afraid of dying. They say, Doctor, I'm afraid of dying. But I've never heard one of them say, Doctor, I'm afraid of judgment. Just think about that for a second. The enemy's got us all worried about dying, but the main issue is not dying. The main issue is what's going to happen after you die. Where are you going to spend eternity? The doctor goes on to say, and judgment is the main concern of patients who have been there and returned to tell about it, close quote. And I think that's why Paul preached the three-point sermon because if you don't preach truth, if you sacrifice truth, you will inevitably sacrifice true hope. We can give people pie in the sky, false hope all day long. But if we do, it's not going to do them any good if it's not based in reality, if it's not based in the fundamental teaching of the scripture. And so in their book, Cochel and Beckwith in Relativism speak on this subject. They say, since the 60s, we have been in the throes of this quiet but desperate revolution of thought called the death of truth We don't mean truth in the sense of something being my personal opinion. Rather, we refer to the death of what the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer called true truth, the extinction of the idea that any particular thing can be known for sure. One of the major dangers of pluralism that is evident within Christendom is the impact of what D.A. Carson calls philosophical pluralism. He writes, The extent to which it, philosophical pluralism and relativism, has invaded the church is troubling. Not less troubling for the preacher of the gospel is the extent to which it is everywhere assumed, especially by the middle and upper classes, by the media and print elite, by almost all who set the agenda for the nation. In this environment, it is not surprising that pollsters turn up all sorts of contradictory evidence. Thus, while 74% of Americans strongly agree that there is, quote, only one true God who is holy and perfect and who created the world and the rules today, close quote, fully 64% strongly agree or agree somewhat with the assertion that there is no absolute truth, close quote. There's something wrong, folks. There's something going on in the culture, and it is this, There, there are people everywhere, who think truth is based upon an opinion rather than objective standards. I've got an article in mind, I'm going to write it, and here's the title. It is not that hard to figure out, folks. The things that are being debated in the culture right now are not that hard to figure out. They're evident. They're obvious but we are exchanging good for evil and evil for good. We can't figure it out anymore because we have lost the moral compass and it is spilled over to the church. We are so busy trying to be relevant, we have made ourselves irrelevant. We have come up with a stylized Christianity to please the masses, and I'm talking now to other preachers as well, and we have made ourselves irrelevant both to man and to God. If we don't preach the truth, people cannot have true hope. The Apostle Paul, I want you to see it, did not hesitate. Now, I'm sure that he had his moments where he felt that he was a little overwhelmed, maybe a little tired of being beat up. Maybe, you know, you've been there before. Lord, can you get somebody else? I'm not sure I'm the guy or the gal that is equipped to speak into this situation. But you know what? God can give you the power. And this is what the message is about today. So before I go any further, I want to talk to you a little bit about hope. And here's what it is. God's truth brings freedom John 8:32 in rapid fire. Truth brings hope. We are to testify to the hope that we have within us 1 Peter 3:15. The Bible makes it clear that those without God are without hope Ephesians 2:12. Jesus Christ is our hope 1 Timothy 1:1. 1, 1. He is the one on whom we have set our hope 2 Corinthians 1:10. He is the God of hope Romans 15:13. When we are born again, we are born again to a living hope. First Peter one three. We are looking for the blessed hope. Titus two thirteen. And this hope is the anchor of our souls. Hebrews six eighteen and nineteen. It is a sure hope. It is the hope of the glory of God. Colossians one twenty seven. It is to this truth and hope we testify, which also purifies us. First John three three. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We cannot be in prevent defense in this culture. We just can't. It is time to go on the offensive. And that's what you're going to see the Apostle Paul do. Every time he's in a position where he's defending himself, he turns it around and he goes on the offensive before governors and kings. He doesn't care who they are. It was said of John Knox, he did not fear the face of man, because he feared the face of God more. Amen? That's when you will preach what you need to preach. That's what you'll, when you'll say what you need to say because you fear the Lord. That's what we need to get back to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Now, hope in this context refers to the believing expectation. If you're a note taker, I'm gonna give a long definition of hope. You might wanna go back and get it later on the internet. Hope refers to the believing expectation that God will fulfill the promises and prophecies made in the Old and New Testament. For Paul, hope refers specifically to the belief that these promises have been and will be fulfilled in Jesus. Thus the question before us is whether those whom Paul preaches to will believe in this hope or reject it and perish. Now I mentioned Felix and Drusilla. We know some years later, Drusilla, who at the time that she stood before Paul was about 20, was on a shopping spree in Pompeii. She was near the uh, area of Mount Vesuvius. I think she was dancing and probably looking for a Gucci purse. And the volcano, as I mentioned two weeks ago, erupted. And she and her son that she had borne to the governor both perished in the lava. One pastor said, I wonder if while she was dancing in Pompeii and heard the rumblings in the background, she said to herself, ah, who wants to listen to that Little Jewish Jewish man, what does he know? What's he talking about anyway? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And down the mountain comes the lava. And everyone we preach to and don't preach to is going to stand before God. You see, God has fixed a day when He will judge the world in righteousness. That's why Paul brought it up because he knew that there was a day coming. In the Hebrew picture language, the word hope is kiva. It means what comes after the nail or what comes from strength. Jesenius, commenting on the Hebrew, says, this word means to twist or to bind, hence a rope. The word also means to be strong or robust and to expect or to await, perhaps from enduring, remaining, which differs uh, but little from the notion of strength. Remember Isaiah forty thirty one: those who Hope for the Lord, or those who wait for the Lord, will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Amen? In other words, hope is the byproduct of a strong connection to God and His truth. One writer says, Hope comes when we are nailed or secured to God and to His ways. Hope is the expectation of good. It is linked with trust and yearning and is differentiated from fear. The life of the righteous is grounded in hope and that implies a future because its point of reference is to God. And over and over again when Paul talks about hope, he directly links it to the resurrection. He says, we are hoping in the God of resurrection. That's what I'm preaching. That's what my hope is in. And I ask the question to all of us, where does your hope lie? Few governments have been more brutal to Christians than that of North Korea writes David Jeremiah. Soon O.K. Lee was a prisoner in North Korea from 1987 to 1992. She did not become a Christian, however, until she escaped to South Korea. When she first received Christ, she was overwhelmed by her memories of what she had seen and heard in prison. It was the simple things, like the Christians who sang as they were being put to death. At that time, she did not understand, and she thought that they were crazy. She was not allowed to talk, so she never had the chance to speak with a Christian. She does remember hearing the word amen. While she was there, she never saw Christians deny their faith, not one. When those Christians were silent, the officers would become furious and kick them. At that time, she could not understand why they risked their lives when they could have said, I do not believe, and done what the officers wanted them to do. She even saw many who sang hymns as they were being kicked and the beatings intensified. The officers would call them crazy and take them to the electric treatment room. She didn't see one of them come out alive. It was that singing that stuck with her. Perhaps it was the singing of those precious saints that planted a seed in her spirit and eventually led her to Jesus Christ. To skip ahead for a moment by way of introduction, if you go all the way to Acts 26, Festus, who will be on the stage in a moment, says to Paul these words. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Acts 26, 24, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said in Acts 26, 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. If you have a New King James, I speak the words of truth and reason. If you have a NIV, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. If you're going to be called crazy, and maybe some of you can directly relate to this, some of your family members and co-workers think you are crazy bananas, then let it be because you have lived your life and spoken the truth of the essential gospel and not because it is some stylized, watered-down version, as I mentioned before, that makes us irrelevant. People can see the difference, folks. If Jesus died on the cross and He is alive from the grave, then He is our hope. Amen? Amen. If there is something else that happened there, if it's simply a metaphor for some other symbolic whatever, go do something else. Go surfing on a Sunday morning or chase that little white ball around the golf course. I don't know why you do that. But then again, I do it. So it's a confession. My wife said a lot. Last week you were so complimentary. You now. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll give you the money later, okay? So. So Paul does all things for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because he wants people to have hope. Paul wanted everyone to become a Christian, including Felix the governor, including King Agrippa, both who were living totally immoral lives, And I have to ask myself this question. See if this resonates with you. Paul wanted everybody to become a Christian. I'm not sure I do. I'm not sure I do. You know why? Because if I really did, I would back it up with my actions, right? So the Apostle Paul is definitely a man that we need to look to and see what makes him tick. So let's look at Acts 25. That was all preamble. That means introduction. 25.1, 25.1, we will not get through two chapters. So don't get worried. If you're already thinking about your lunch, it's all right. <laughs> Acts 25.1 says Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province, now we know that at the end of the last chapter what has happened is after two years, look at Acts 24.27, had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So he left his role, and we know from history that he left in some shame. A lot of complaints against him, and he left the position, and Festus is now the new governor. Acts 25, verse 1, having arrived in the province, three days later, he just had set up his family pictures in his desk, put some files away, and he decided he would go up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. About 65 miles, he had to go from the coast inland, but he knew that the relationship with the Jewish hierarchy, the Sanhedrin, and those who led the nation was critical to his position. So he spends just a couple days getting settled in office and quickly he makes the trip. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews, verse 2, Acts 25, brought charges against Paul and they were urging him, requesting a concession or a favor against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. The new governor came, and he wanted to ingratiate himself with the leaders. He goes to Jerusalem, and immediately, right after the handshake, hey, you've got this prisoner named Paul, and we want him brought here for trial. And the whole time, they were planning an ambush to kill him. Remember earlier, we saw 40 men make a covenant. They anathematized themselves before God, and they said, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. And they're still holding their tummies. (laughs) Because Paul was protected by Almighty God. And I think they had to break that covenant. And so now, the religious leaders say, we want this guy dead. Their hate for Paul has simply festered on and on. That's what hate can do. They can't forget that he's still alive in a prison somewhere. And that's not good enough for them if he's in prison. They want him dead. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea. And that he himself would, uh, was about to leave shortly, five Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. That's the English word for the Greek, bima, an elevated platform. He's taken his seat in official capacity and he ordered Paul to be brought. Bring the prisoner Paul in. And on his elevated platform, he sits. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. I want you to notice what Paul goes through. Bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Here you come out of your your prison situation, you're shackled, and like bees, they begin to surround him. He did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. He should die. Wow. Right at them they come. Psalm 118 verse 12 says, They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as the fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Can you imagine Paul? I mean, he walks out and these guys surround him and they begin yelling and making accusations. And while Paul said in his own defense, and I'm thinking that he had to probably say it loud, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, verse 9, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. And I think he looked at the governor with a clean conscience and said, you know what this is. You know why they've come here. You understand that I'm innocent. If then I am a wrongdoer, look at verse 11. And if committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them I appeal to Caesar. And this was the right of every Roman citizen. If you didn't feel like you were getting justice before an official, think of like a lower court. You're not getting justice. You can appeal to the Supreme Court. And every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to the emperor. And so that's what Paul does. I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to the Supreme Court, to the emperor himself. And you know who the emperor of the time is? Caesar Nero. The guy that used to light Christians on fire in his garden and go in his chariot screaming like a madman. If you would like to listen to this message or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. In Acts chapter 25 and 26, we see the Apostle Paul end up on trial. You could call this truth on trial. And first it's before Festus and then ultimately before King Agrippa. The Apostle Paul has a chance to witness to kings, to governors, to those in authority. If you were on trial for the truth, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you as a Christian? Would your co-workers or friends or family say, there's no doubt that person's a Christian. Well, for Paul, he was stirring up, you know, trouble everywhere. It seems like Paul either had a revival or he ended up in persecuted or in prison everywhere he went. And here, you know, he's going to stand before King Agrippa and he's going to make a defense. Literally, he's going to make a defense for the hope that he has. And he's going to do it in such a way that we need to pay attention to because the Apostle Paul was one of the great apologists that the world has ever seen. King Agrippa came and you know he came with a lot of pomp and circumstance and he came with a woman that he shouldn't have been with and you know when the Apostle Paul begins to preach in Acts 26, if you look at verse 8, Paul says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? And then Paul once again I think for the third time in the book of Acts, shares his personal testimony. He shares his conversion story. And you know, folks, there's a lot of power in your conversion story. In the time that you met Jesus or got serious with Jesus. And and this is what Paul says. You know, he says, look, uh, this didn't really start with me. This started with Christ. And this is what he's called me to do. And the Apostle Paul lays out the mission that he was given. Here it is. Acts 26, 16, and 17 says, Arise and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And here's why he was sent, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion or power of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa Paul says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also to those in Jerusalem and then throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You see, all the suffering that the apostle Paul went through, folks, was for a higher cause. He was called by the Lord to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that people could hear the message of forgiveness and receive.